All right, it is 10 a.m. Uh, uh, Mountain Standard Time. Uh, so I think we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, good morning or afternoon or evening, depending on where you're joining us from. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and as a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'll be conducting today from my home in Provo, Utah, and I'm happy to welcome you to our third week of Dialogue Sunday School with James Jones and Derek Knox. Uh, just a couple of items of business as we get started and before I introduce our guest teachers today. Um, first of all, uh, we are grateful, especially in this time of physical distancing, uh, for the technology that brings us together. But while we're a lot more familiar with Zoom than we were a month ago and more than we ever wanted to be, <laughs> Uh, there may still be some hiccups. Uh, other board members will be helping out with some of the technical issues today, but please, as always, be patient with that. And please also follow some basic protocols that we know will help with our broadcast today. And namely, that is, uh, please keep yourself muted. Uh, we invite you to use the chat function to respectfully share thoughts and ask questions. And we anticipate that toward the end today, there'll be some opportunities for interaction with our teachers and for them to answer some of the questions and engage in some of the conversation that, that we're having as they're talking um, on chat. And I'll be doing my best to help facilitate that. Um, but again, uh, please be patient as we try to work through some of that. Second, uh, Dialogue celebrates the Latter-day Saint tradition of lay leadership and teaching and is built on the belief that all God's children can seek and receive divine inspiration. Since its founding, Dialogue has encouraged and sought to foster the expression of a variety of viewpoints. And we believe this is especially important for us now in this time and place. The views expressed today, as with any ward or branch Sunday school class, are those of the individual presenters and are not necessarily those of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, other faith traditions of the restoration or of the dialogue foundation. Um, with that, I will uh, share a, a brief introduction for our guest teachers today um, and we'll have a closing uh, opening prayer and then we'll um, turn the time over to, um, to our speakers. Our guest teachers today, Brother Jones and Brother Knox are the hosts of the podcast Beyond the Block. Uh, a show on the Dialogue Podcast Network. And if you didn't know there was such a thing, there is, and we invite you heartily to check that out. Uh, their show makes an effort to center the marginalized in Mormonism. James and Derek describe themselves as staunch advocates for the theology and harsh critics of the culture when it comes to Mormonism. They feel passionately that their inner thrust for justice, love, and salvation for all people regardless of color, sex, orientation, and other identities, is not only consistent with the message of Christ, but is the message of Christ. Derek is an educator and theologian from Texas whose research interests involve grounding LGBTQI plus theology and activism in the scriptures. He joined the church in 2015 after beginning a master's degree in biblical studies at Andover Theological School and is currently a Sunday school teacher uh, in his ward. Uh, James is a lifelong member of the church who served his mission in South Africa and got his bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University. He works as a singer and voiceover artist and currently serves as a temple, or at least in better times, as a temple ordinance worker and his elders quorum liturgical art specialist. Uh, before they begin their lesson, our opening prayer will be offered by Ronnie Jo Draper. Uh, Ronnie Jo, uh, she, her, hers is an enrolled member of the Yurok tribe and joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when she was 19. She is a professor at Brigham Young University where she teaches teachers how to create classrooms in which all children, regardless of race, social class, gender, gender identity, gender expression, sexuality, religion, and ability can grow and thrive. She is also the president of the board of the ACLU of Utah and gives much of her time uh, to advocate for oppressed people in her community, including the LGBTQIA individuals and families. She's also one of our dialogue authors and we invite you to, as part of your devotional reading today, to check out her essay, 
uh, in our summer 2016 issue, The Art of Queering Boundaries in LDS Communities. Um, Ronnie Joe, and I will, you're unmuted. I'm unmuted, thank you. Dear God, our creator, we come to you in thanksgiving and in prayer to offer ourselves humbly to receive instruction and to open ourselves up to thy blessings. We pray for the healing that can come to us through thee. Many of us are in seek of healing for ourselves, for our families, for the earth, for our communities, for the world. And we know that when we come together in community that we can know thy power and do much good. We pray for our friends who will be instructing us that they will have thy power with them, and that they will be able to say things that will touch us and that will move us to do good. And we pray that we will seek always to do kind things and good things. Dear God, O oh Creator, please be with us that we will seek always to create good wherever we are. And these things we pray for in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, thank you, Sister Draper. Uh, and we'll turn over the platform to Brother Jones and Brother Knox. Awesome. Thank you, Rebecca. Really appreciate it. Um, Derek, we don't actually have this written in our outline, but did you want to give a, um, I suppose, contextual introduction to what we're about to discuss today, or do you want to just dive right into it? Sure, I can uh, go ahead and, and talk a little bit about this. I just have two main points. The first thing is uh, we're covering the beginning of King Benjamin's sermon in Mosiah chapters one through three. And the first thing is that it's important to look at King Benjamin's sermon as part of a coronation ritual. So you have the bestowal of ritual objects, including the brass plates and the plates of Nephi and the Leahona, the sword of Laban, all of these ritual objects get passed down onto King, uh, who is going to be King Mosiah, Benjamin's son. You can read about this in Mosiah 1, 15, uh, verses 15 to 16. And I think the importance here is, and we'll get to this, the records, right? Um, and the passing down of ritual wisdom. And the second point I want to talk about is we had something, if you go back to the book of Omni, um, Verse, uh, Omni 1, verses 14 through 19, you actually have this account of the integration of the Mulekites into the Nephite civilization. So they had, uh, the Mulekites had come over, but they didn't have records, their language had been lost, their, their stories had been lost, and I presume that their covenants had been lost as well. So you have these people who were not on the covenant path, who were then integrated in the time of the first King Mosiah, Benjamin's father. And that sets us up for what happens today in King Benjamin's sermon. You've got him spiritually and politically unifying the Nephites with the Mulekites and grounding them in the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's kind of um, where I want to go. There's a possible parallel to Paul's integration of the Gentiles later. And um, one thing that's interesting is it could be that the Mulekites were excluded from the path, the covenant path, based on no fault of their own. Right? It was their ancestors who came over who lost the, the stories and language and their records. But King Benjamin found a way to unify them, and I think this speaks to the best of prophets and prophetic authority. Awesome. Thanks for uh, giving us that introduction, Derek. So just by way of diving directly into the content here, we're going to be starting in Mosiah chapter 1. And uh, I want to talk about verses one. Well, I want to talk about verse three real quick. Um, just to read the relevant part of this verse, or actually before we get there, I just want to bring up the fact that a few days ago, Derek and I 
um, we're talking about how members of the church um, how members of our faith because of our history and because we follow Christ, we should be the first ones coming to the aid of marginalized people. And we specifically were talking about how in this moment, LGBTQs and uh, black folks, I said that Mormons should be among the first to say things like Black Lives Matter and the first people at interfaith vigils mourning the uh, deaths of unarmed black men killed by police officers because Mormons have experienced something very similar. We have experienced government-sanctioned violence in the past. Um, Derek then asked me why that isn't the case at present, and I didn't really have a good answer for, her, for him at that time, uh, at least one that I could have shared in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, but um, I, I came to my own conclusions, perhaps because the two of us had just read these chapters together in preparation for a discussion. My, my first thought was that we are a forgetful people. Uh, and that charts for anyone who is in a position of privilege. Privilege shortens your memory. Like that's just the way that is always historically operated. If they ever knew what it was like to not have privilege, people of privilege would often forget what it's like to not have privilege quite, quite quickly. And uh, they forget the ways that the privileged have hurt the marginalized. We can see the evidence of this anytime there is a straight pride parade, anytime a white person is saying all lives matter, or anytime a priesthood holder is equating motherhood to holding the priesthood. In each case, you have a member of the privileged class demonstrating either an ignorance of an institution's oppressive past at best, and or they're displaying enmity towards the oppressed class at worst. We as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, I concluded then that we have forgot our people's experience with racial violence, that there was actually a time in our nation's history where people tried to explain Mormon supposed inferiority and degeneracy with the same pseudosciences that they used to explain black peoples. And not only that, we also forgot Christ, whose ministry was spent in the margins, so much so that he broke laws to be in the margins. We see him with tax collectors, uh, sex workers, and the disabled. And of course, we have the, um, the atonement, which is the ultimate act of liberation from sin and death that we all happen to need. Forgetfulness is then the only explanation I could have thought of that we as a people have not remembered our history as we ought to, and that we as a people may not be remembering Christ as we ought to. And that's because of what's in these verses in chapter one. In the second half of verse three, we read, remember that were it not for these plates, which contain these records and these commandments, we must have suffered in ignorance. Further, Alma goes on to say in Alma 37 that the records have enlarged the memory of his people. King Benjamin said that his sons, uh, that he taught his sons from the records that they would become, and this is an interesting phrase, men of understanding, without which they would have suffered in ignorance, not knowing the things of God. There are many more instances in the scriptures of uh, of prophets drawing strength and compassion and understanding from the wells of the histories of their people. And what's worse about this whole situation is that we as members of the church are in, we have access to the record. We have access to our history as a church and these scriptures, which testify of Christ and his mission, we have access to words and histories of folks on the margins. In the chapter heading, of Mosiah chapter one, we learn that the religion of the Nephites is preserved because of the records. We also learn more about what the religion is, what that religion is as we read King Benjamin's sermon. But among the more important teachings he gives is that retaining a remission of our sins, being filled with the love of God and looking up for folks on the margins is a big part of our religion and a natural consequence of our discipleship. You can read more about that in Mosiah chapter four verses about 11 through about 27. Therefore, it stands, um, it stands to reason that we suffer in ignorance if the knowledge we have at present is not inspiring us to live more consecrated lives. We suffer in ignorance if our knowledge is not inspiring us to retain a remission of our sin. We suffer in ignorance if it is not filling us with the love of God. And we suffer in ignorance if it's not inspiring us to do better 
by the marginalized, especially if they are suffering the same injustices that we ourselves have experienced. Brother, brothers and sisters, I should, not, I should not be going to church with people that have an extermination order in their historical DNA, yet respond with hostility or indifference to black folks. We, we, I shouldn't be going to church with people who have oppression in their DNA, but when black folks are experiencing similar oppression, similar dispossession, similar dehumanization, we should not be expressing any kind of apathy or even hostility towards those folks. So I would then ask, are we a people of understanding? Are we filled with the love of God? Are we aware of and do we seek to understand and minister to the most vulnerable among us? Because that is the religion that these records are preserving. So we must, we must ask ourselves that question or these questions of whether or not we are in fact preserving that religion, by whether or not we are retaining our remission of our sins, whether or not we're filled with the love of God, whether or not we feel compelled to deal with and succor the most vulnerable uh, among us. Yeah, thank you so much, James. Let me just jump in here and add two things. One thing that I love about, especially the fourth verse of Mosiah 1, is the emphasis on the languages that they uh, that King Benjamin taught the languages to his sons so that they could be able to read the records. And one thing that we know is that ed education is a great equalizer. You know, I think that education, if it's differentially done, can also be a great privilege uh, sustainer, but it can also be a great equalizer. And I think that I've, I've learned that some LGBTs, at least, must learn the languages, the history, and the content of our scriptures better than those who would use them against us. You know, it unfortunately seems that it takes um, a near encyclopedic knowledge of the scriptures for an LGBT member to exist in the church without a significant amount of pain. And I think we need to name this. I like, I like all the things that you've said. It reminds me that in many cases, marginalized peoples have committed to memory those parts of history that the privileged have torn out of the history books. And just keeping all of that alive is very important. And I also love what Rabbi B'nai Lappi said. She said that we must master our tradition or else our tradition will master us. And I think that is very relevant for all marginalized people with any within any tradition, especially people of color, women, uh, disabled people, uh, single people, uh, you know, and of course, LGBTQ people. Thank you. Okay. And uh, I think the next thing we wanted to talk about was uh, King Benjamin, specifically leader accountability and responsiveness. Derek, do you want to talk about that a little bit as well? Derek, unmute yourself, bro. Yes, can you bring back up the, the slides? Uh, yeah, I can do that. Okay. I can't do that on your behalf, though. Like, if somebody's got it in speaker view, then they're going to have to click on me in order to see the uh, slides. Okay, so then let me share my screen. Hold on. Okay, so how do I get the, uh, there we go. Okay, hopefully people can see my, uh, uh, let's see. Can you still see my uh, slides or did they go away? My slides went away. I'll pull it up, Derek, if you want. You can just go ahead and talk. Okay. Um, okay, well, I can start talking about this. Um, so many of the features of the text in, in Mosiah 1, especially 1 through 6, demonstrate that King Benjamin emptied himself of privilege and got down in it with the people. And we've got a number of these texts right here. Um, hopefully people can see the, the screen here. Um, so what is the first text in our, 
let me just try sharing my, okay. So here we have this in the words, back in the words of Mormon, we have that King Benjamin fought with the strength of his own arm. So he really got down in it with people and made sure that, that he didn't use his privilege to exempt himself from what everyone else was going through. Now in our next text, what is our next text? Okay, here we have in his sermon, he says, I am like as yourselves, subject to all manner of infirmities. Um, I have been chosen by this people. So we've got two things, one here, he, he names his limitations and in humility expresses that he doesn't have any special powers, he doesn't have anything that the rest of the people don't have, but he, he makes himself to be a servant, okay? And then the second thing is he says, and this is very interesting because I don't know exactly how much they had been democratized, but he says, I have been chosen by this people. There is a sense in which, even though you had a monarchy, you also had an element of democracy in this. And then later he says that the whole point of this was to serve, uh, to serve you with all the might, mind, and strength of the Lord with which the Lord hath granted unto me. So I think that's what we have. You have King Benjamin doing anything and everything he can to express the fact that he is accountable to the people. And that is the best in leaders uh, comes out when they're accountable to the people and when they're responsive to people's needs. So let's go to the next slide. And what's our next text we have? So here, um, I didn't quote this. I just summarized it. We've got King Benjamin responsive to the needs of the people in two different ways. One, he realizes there's an access need. The multitude is so large that he builds a tower so that people are able to hear him. And I think this speaks to issues around disability and accommodation and, and, and how leaders need to be responsive to the actual needs of the people, which means they need to know what's going on. And then another way that accessibility and inclusion are important values for King Benjamin is that he realized, oh, there's too many people. I'm going to have my words recorded down and sent out to everyone to make it even accessible that way. And what's really interesting about this is he finds different ways of doing the same thing. And I think that is a very powerful leadership attribute. And now what's in our next text? Oh, this is great. Here you have economic modesty. You have King Benjamin saying, I've labored with mine own hands that I might serve you. And this is important because he does not use his privilege to exploit his people. I think you've got a contrast with King Noah here. But um, what he does is, is basically takes on all the burdens that they have. Like they have to support themselves. So King Benjamin does the same. And then he's accountable in the very last clause here. It says, ye, you, ye yourselves are witnesses this day. This really highlights the fact that he's inviting accountability. He is inviting the people to, to hold him accountable and to be witnesses of what he's saying and what he's, not just what he says, but his whole life of service. He is using his deeds, um, holding them up in a way that makes himself accountable. And then what's the next text, or is that all we have here? Oh, we I have think that's all we got. Okay. Oh, there's one more. Yeah, one more. Oh, this is great. So in Mosiah 5, which is getting into the next lesson a little bit, we've got King Benjamin becoming accountable to the people by sending out. He actually sends out messengers during this uh, talk to get, back, to get information back to him, checking on the impact of his words. And he's very sensitive and responsive to the needs of the people. And I think this introduces the best of, of leadership qualities that we should expect in leaders in the church. Hmm. You have any thoughts on this? I do not. I think you summed it up very well. And uh, like you said, we're going to be talking a little bit more about leadership uh, closer to the, to the end of this whole thing. So I'll probably save it for then just for the sake of time. So um, moving on, we do want to talk about a, a scripture mastery that's present in Mosiah chapter 2. That talks about uh, service and uh, and uh, the great commandment. I actually want to liken the commandment about service to the uh, to the great commandment. So, what's so profound about this particular verse? This is Mosiah chapter two, verse seventeen, and uh, we want to talk about sixteen and seventeen in particular. 
reads, Behold, I say unto you that because I said unto you that I have spent my days in your service, I do not, de I do not desire to boast, for I have only been in the service of God. And verse 17, And behold, I tell you these things, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. So um, what makes this particular verse so profound to me is that there, there's an implication that the first and second great commandments are really one and the same. We, we see this in a few other verses as well. We see this in uh, Matthew 25, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the, these, the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Shout out to Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh and Margaret Olson Hemming. If you have not picked up their book, Book of Mormon for the Least of These, definitely do that as soon as you can. It's one of my favorite, it's probably my favorite companion to the Book of Mormon uh, right now in terms of study. So um, yeah, the least of these. And we see it again in uh, 1 John chapter 4. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And then we see it again. This is probably my greatest, my favorite summation of the unity of the first and second great commandments. This is Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. This is the Greek New Testament translation. Be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law, the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to someone else. All these and any others besides are summed up in the one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love then is to obey the whole law, and to obey the whole law is to love God. When Jesus first gives us the first and second great commandments, it is actually in response to uh to a question, a single question about what is the great commandment. Oh, there's one more verse here. Proverbs 19:17. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, which he hath given, will he pay him again? Uh, moving on, that's the scripture in Acts. Let me get on to the scripture in, oh no, it's going over and over. Okay, here we go. So this is Matthew 22, 36 through 40. This is the verse in question. Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy, all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So just very interesting thing to note is that when somebody asks what is the great commandment, Jesus re responds with these two. So to get back to this verse, which speaks specifically about service, this has tremendous implications for folks on the margins because if serving others is serving God, then it stands to reason that the most urgent service required is to the most vulnerable populations. We can ask ourselves right now, who is the most vulnerable to COVID-19? Who's most vulnerable to the coronavirus? We've been new that the elderly are at risk as well as those who are already of poor health. It's also being reported that black communities are being hit hard as well as LGBTQ folks, as well as those who are in poverty. And for those of you who remember Jeffrey R. Holland's incredible address from a couple weeks ago, where did he direct our focus to after this COVID-19 stuff was done? He specifically mentions the poor, the hungry, the children, the ethnically, racially, and religiously dispossessed. Obviously, we can add uh, to that, we can add women, we can add LGBTQs, we can add the elderly, we can add the disabled, and uh, even more. But if serving our fellow man is serving God, and given what God says his work and his glory is, this makes sense, uh, it stands to reason that God would want us to prioritize our efforts as his people on tending to the needs of the most vulnerable and the most in need. In a time of COVID-19, therefore, uh, staying at home is serving God. In a time of racial dispossession, addressing family members and friends when they be making those jokes, that's serving God. In a time of institutional homophobia, Speaking up in church when someone reinforces homophobia in the name of God, that's serving God. Creating an environment in which our children can learn without fearing for their lives, that's serving God. I would go so far as to say that uh, supporting policies that fight for pay equity, dismantle the prison industrial complex, and expand healthcare, these are all serving God because all three of those things are directly correlated to the poverty in this particular country. So um, I, I, I could go on, but the point is, that if our God demands we serve him, then we as a people, he is demanding 
the dismantling of any oppressive institutions or anything that places a stumbling block between our siblings in Christ and their ability to live a full, productive, and, uh, and abundant life. Okay, let me just add a few of my thoughts here. Um, one of the things that was so curious to me was um, the, the connection between service towards God and service towards the neighbor. Like, what actually connects those? Um, because there's some intimate connection between them. And in fact, it's so deep and intimate and profound a connection that King Benjamin is able to use the word only. He uses it twice, both in verse 16 and verse 17, um, to say, you know, I have only served, when I served you, I was only serving God. And then later he says that, you know, when you are in the service of your failing beings, you are only in the service of God. You are only in the service of God. It's not like you're also in the service of God. There is something intimate about the connection between the creator and the creature that service towards one counts as service. And I'm just really blown away by, by why is that the case? Is it because, um, humans are created in the image of God? Well, if that were the case, well, what about service towards, you know, plants and animals and other things that, that are um, not explicitly in our tradition as literal in the image of God? You know, it's just, why is that? Is it, be, is it service towards God because God has commanded it? I think that really resonates with a lot of the context of King Benjamin's discourse because he's really talking about the commandments. I think this commandment of loving God and commanding and God commanding us to love our neighbor means that whatever we do for the the neighbor counts as being done towards God. Um, and really what we're doing is we're recapitulating what God has done for us. When we serve our neighbor, we are participating in the great program that God has initiated, you know, in Moses 139. Uh, for behold, this is my work and my glory to bring, bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of, of humankind. I'm going to make that gender neutral. But we're glorifying and fulfilling God's purpose there. Um, and one other thing that I was wondering about is, and this might sound kind of weird, but is it perhaps that we're able to glorify God and serve God by doing something that God can't do? I notice we're not usually in the, in the habit of talking about what God can and can't do, but the limitations of this mortal world plus our own human agency mean that God relies on us to do some things. And I think that is so beautiful, that God relies on us to fulfill part of God's program in the world. And so I think I would love to hear people's reflection on this later on about what exactly it is that it part what exactly in our service completes God's mission here? And I think one of the things I want to go back to is this concept in liberation theology, that liberation theology is more about application than it is about explanation. You know, I think where we run into the problems in the church is when we try to come out with all these speculative explanations for things, and then some of those explanations become dogma, and that's never what it should be. We should never let these explanations drive our action. We should dr let the actions uh, drive our reflection on, on things. And so I, I love the idea of, of beginning and ending with action and then reflecting on it rather than coming to, and so I'm engaging in a little bit of this trying to ex explain things when we should just act. And I think reflect on the action is probably the biggest step towards understanding what it is that King Benjamin really meant. Um, more action rather than theory. This next slide is also you, I think, Derek. Yeah, okay, let, well, let me just go on to this then as King Benjamin as a model of prophetic humility and effective servant leadership. And I just love what happens here because like I said, we have the integration of the Neokites who, um, who, uh, who did not have written records. Now, apparently they didn't, I don't know whether what kind of oral histories they had as well. Ronnie jo Draper brought up this point about like how, how do you navigate a written heritage and an oral tradition? And I, I think that is a very, very important question. Um, and in some ways the oral tradition can be serve as a checks and balances 
to make the, the written tradition into a living tradition. I think there's, there's a lot of room for that there, and we need to leave room for that. But the Mulekites were left out of this whole covenant path, and somehow King Benjamin united them. And I think it's very analogous to what we see in Ephesians. So King Benjamin is using his prophetic office and authority and humbling himself in order to include those who had been left out for whatever reason. And it's very parallel to what we have here in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically here we have that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. And then it goes on to say, at that time ye, meaning you Gentiles, were without Christ, being, being aliens, um, or strangers is another way of translating that, someone who's outside from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope. What's interesting is that without circumcision, which was part of the eternal covenant, without circumcision, the Gentiles were not on the covenant path. And in Acts 15, in Galatians, you have so many examples of early Christians stepping out, taking their privilege, and you know, emptying themselves of that privilege to make room for someone on their own terms. I can't emphasize enough that it wasn't that the Gentiles were, con were included by saying, oh, you'll just get circumcised and become Jews, and that's how we're going to include you. No. They were included on their own terms without circumcision, without any of these things that up until that time was considered to be part of the covenant path. And look at what that did. Let's look at the end here, verse 19 and 20. Now, therefore, ye, meaning you Gentiles, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. I know a lot of Latter-day Saints loved to quote verse 20, but without quoting the whole chapter before, which was all about the inclusion of the Gentiles, those who were left out those who were told that there's no covenant path for them on their own terms, Paul was able to include them. And I think that is really the key of what prophetic leadership is. Taking your own privilege, finding a way to include others who have been left out. And that's why this whole argument in Ephesians ends up by saying that uh, the... Uh, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Why are the, they the foundation? They are the foundation of radical inclusion. They, I, I think that's my most important thing that I, that I think I can say about Ephesians is it's not just, oh, we love the apostles and prophets and we sustain them. We sustain them because they radically surprise us by including those who were left out. And that's exactly what King Benjamin does here. So let's... Um, and I love how King Benjamin even picks this up himself in Mosiah 3.20 when he says, And moreover, I say unto you that the time shall come when the knowledge of a Savior shall spread throughout every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So King Benjamin himself is really um, picking up on that. And, and that leads me to my main point is that when apostles and prophets are doing their job as servants of the people, they are the foundation of radical inclusion. They take those who are alienated from God's covenants and find a way for them to be included on their own times, on their own terms and in their own time. Um, and this is kind of where I would love for this to go is I would, you know, some people say I would love the church leaders to be nicer to LGBTs. And, and there's part of me that says, yeah, but there's also part of me that really would like to test this out and say, you know, I would love church leaders and members to look LGBT people in the eye and say and tell us that we are not fully human. I want them to look us in the eye and tell us that we do not have and do not deserve what everyone else has and expects and takes for granted as a full human life. Look, they don't do that and they won't do that. They do not have the courage to look at the logical implications of what they're saying. You know, deep down they know that they can't look LGBTs in the eye and say you're not fully human. They refuse to do that. And deep down they know that there's a problem. Um, the policies of discrimination in this church 
are based on no known revelation. There is no known revelation that I know of um, that is a public revelation that is the basis of the policies which alienate my people at this time. And because they don't have the courage to look us in the eye and deal with the implication of what they're saying, I think it serves as a contrast to what King Benjamin is doing here. King Benjamin really did everything he can to get down in it with the people and understand their problems and make things accessible and include people who have been left out. And I mean, they are a King Benjamin should be, you know, our hero at this time, a model of prophetic humility and servant leadership. You know, King Noah is the exact opposite. He used his position to exploit people economically, build up things for himself, you know, and have people serve him. And in a way, um, King Benjamin is the opposite of that. And, you know, King Benjamin isn't just words. He lived up to his principles. He practiced what he preached. And he's a lot like one, um, there's a Lutheran, a German Lutheran theologian named Hermann Zasse. And Pastor Zasse was at a pastor's conference one time and people, and someone else got up and said, we need to preach about Jesus more. And then he got up and said, no, I have never preached about Jesus in my entire life. I have preached Jesus. And I think that's exactly what King Benjamin does. He doesn't preach about Jesus. He models Jesus and portrays Jesus to us. And I think that is, that is just something that we should never, never forget. And I, I like this idea of, well, if this is really our model of leadership and priesthood authority, what about Jesus? Does Jesus make himself accountable to us? You know, does Jesus make himself accountable to the church? And my answer would be yes, based in part on DNC 121 about the priesthood, that God's own priesthood can never be exercised by unrighteous dominion. And I think there's a sense in which, with which Jesus like opens himself up to us. I love the idea of like him showing himself to, to the doubting Thomas. By the way, today, is the day in the church year that it's one week after Easter. This is the day where Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. And I think that is an, another element of accountability. He says, look here, you know, put your finger in the marks of the nail and in my side. Jesus loves and thrives on being accountable to people. So how much more should the servants of Jesus Christ do the same thing? So what do you think about all those things, uh, James? Do you think that uh, Jesus is accountable to the church? Oh, definitely. Like, there's actually a whole scripture mastery about this. Like, I am bound when you do what I say. You know, we love to say that scripture. So I would say, especially those of us who have been through the temple, you know, that accountability is an eternal principle. And I definitely know that accountability was drilled into my head during the course of my mission. Like, the fact that we begin every planning meeting with a prayer, that we begin every day with a planning session and end every day with an accounting of our days. Like that is something I've taken with me well into my adulthood is talking with God about, you know, how my days have gone, talking with him about what I plan to do. The church follows the same model in all of their administrative planning meetings. Like this is something that is built into the church's DNA because it has literally been with us, this idea, this principle of accountability since the foundation of the world. So I definitely agree that Jesus thrives on accountability and that he wants to be accountable to us the same way he wants us to be accountable to him. Anyway, so um, before we wrap up, we're running short on time here. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the fall and the atonement of Christ as uh, the great equalizer that we learn about in Mosiah chapter 2, verses 20, 23. Um, I love these verses because, like, what does he say here? He says, if you should serve God with all your whole souls, yet you would be unprofitable servants, regardless of how much means we have in this life, regardless of how much resource, regardless of how much privilege we have, due to race, money, status, whatever, like no one has enough or can do enough to break even with God. And that puts all of us on equal ground. And not only that, it puts us all in the state of dependency on God and on each other. King Benjamin seems to imply that this understanding is informed by, this understanding informs
transformed his leadership style and his subsequent labor among the people. Verse 26, he says, if I, whom ye call your king, am no better, am no better than ye yourselves are, for I am also of the dust. That's the king speaking. And ye behold that I am old and am about to yield up this mortal frame to its mother earth. So not only does he acknowledge his status, but he also acknowledges that he is just like everybody else and that he's going to die. Like he acknowledges that in spite of all that privilege, he is still like nothing that he has can preserve his life. So this idea of all of us being dependent on God will be explored in more detail in chapter four. So I don't want to spoil this for whoever is teaching Mosiah chapter four, verse four through six uh, next week. So we'll save that discussion for then. But for now, a simple acknowledgement that we're ultimately all the same in the eyes of God because we're all his children, because we're all dependent on him, adds context to all the times and ways we hear some version of all are alike unto God. That one thing that we have in common as children of God is that all of us have a debt that we cannot pay without Christ. That very thing alone should make us look at each other and our relationships with each other significantly differently as King Benjamin did and exemplified by his leadership and his life among his people. That understanding informed his ministry, both as a ecclesiastical leader and as a political leader. So um, I think that's all I need to say about that with regard to his leadership and regard to the fall and the atonement making all of us the same. Derek, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, well, I think, no, I, I'll just, yeah. Um, I'm wondering what, like, what questions people may, may have. Should we, uh, I think there's, yes, there is a, a sense in which the fall and the atonement equalizes everybody because it puts us really on a level playing field, like you said, it, it puts us all in this. And I love that about what, what King Benjamin does is he gets back to, you know, what we're all, um, you know, we're all coming at the same place, coming from a place of dependency. And that should really take all of the arrogance away from those who have privilege because they're, they don't have anything to be arrogant about. Right. Right. I think mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of all I would add to this. Cool. Then with that, um, I don't know, Rebecca, if you've been watching the uh, chat for relevant questions, but uh, that about does it for us. So if anybody does have questions or if there's anything you've noticed that we should probably pay attention to that's relevant to our discussion, we'd love to address that uh, with the remaining time. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, go ahead. For folks who haven't posed questions or would like to, please do so. Um, we do have a couple um, I think that Derek, you addressed Ronnie Joe's question about um, uh, kind of disregard for oral histories um, and kind of reifying text. Is there something else that you wanted to say about that? So, um, no, other than that, there's a there's a sense in which. Um, we're better off with both written and oral than we are with either one alone. And both can, like I said, can serve it on, as a checks and balances on one another. Um, and I think it's, it's really in, probably uh, a lot of the written recording, the recorded uh, materials we have in the scriptures, a lot of that is recorded oral tradition. And the, the beauty about oral tradition is you get the impact, not just of the thing itself, but you actually get someone's processing of it and the way that they have it. You get their testimony of like how this has affected them, whatever they're passing down, they fold some of themselves into it, which is what I love about the gospels. Like none of them, uh, none of the gospels are, you know, like newspaper dictation recordings of Jesus's speech. It's not a film. It's not someone was there. This is not journalism someone filtered this through their memory, through the memory of the early church. And, and that processing, I think is just so beautiful for me. And I wish we had more of that, multiple voices in the Book of Mormon as well. Um, and then that impacts how we take things today because there's a sense in which, yes, we have a written tradition, but some of our oral tradition can say, can challenge that and say, yes, that's what it says, but that's not how we do it. That's just not how we do it. And I, I wish there would be more room for that in the church today. 
So I think that fits with another comment and question that somebody had posed about, you know, what do we do with the kind of idea that King, um, that King Benjamin is, um, you know, calling on people in families with mothers, fathers, um, children that in some ways kind of reifies um, kind of heteronormative relationships. So then we can kind of take that. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, let me just comment on that real quickly, because one thing that you notice is it's not nuclear families, it's extended families. It's, you've got an element of tribe and clan here going on. And, and I think there's, there's, a, there's a large amount of capacity for the inclusion of LGBT people within that framework. You know, because if you look at it, it talks about the kids and their kids' spouses and then, their, and then those kids' kids. And there's just a large amount of, of room for extended family, which is, it's not 1950s America. This is, this is really a tribal system here. And I think there's room, as much room as there is, uh, there could be for LGBT people, for single people, also for issues of chosen family and adoption. I don't know exactly what the Nephite language around adoption was, but I think the fact that they were able to adopt in the Mulekites and adopt in other tribes and, and, call, and then call them Nephites, um, while that erases their own history, there is a sense in which you're building a new history together and you're redefining what the word Nephite means because of who you've included. Uh, great. That's, that's, um, thank you for that. That's where my mind went, is that we have for so long interpreted kind of everything through the post-World War II um, kind of mainstream 1950s paradigm of uh, nuclear families, but we don't, um, we don't need to do that. Uh, and that keeps us from seeing um, the possibility in, in the scriptures. Uh, another related uh, comment question from Andy Pitcher Davis. Um, she asked, what can we do now to boost the stories of the marginalized, especially during this time of pandemic? James, Derek. Yeah, to boost the stories, that, I mean, that's going to differ person to person because I don't know what resources everybody has at their disposal. Um, in Mosiah chapter four through six, we're going to learn a lot about how, you know, we're told to give our substance to the poor as we are able. But he says, and he specifies substance. He also says, you know, your food, uh, clothes, but this could really be expanded to mean whatever you have at your disposal. This could be your time, your resources. It could be your money. It could be your influence if you have influence. Um, I can't dive into everybody's person and determine what the best way is going to be to help uh, the marginalized folks. What I can say is that the same people who are marginalized by this pandemic are gonna be the same people who are marginalized when the pandemic is over. The same people who have been marginalized before or most vulnerable during this pandemic, they're gonna be the same people who are most vulnerable when it's over. It's still gonna be the elderly, it's still going to be those in poverty, it's still gonna be communities of color, it's still gonna be all those folks. So whatever you have at your disposal, that could be giving to charities that help those people, that could be volunteering at centers that help these people. Like, this is very general and this may not be your bag. This may not be something that plays to your strengths as somebody who seeks to serve in different ways. So I can't answer that question directly for everybody, but I can speak in generalities simply by saying everybody should see what strengths they have, see what resources they have, and then use what resources they can spare to you know, serve in whatever way they are uniquely qualified to do. Me personally, I'm not rich, you know, I'm not gonna be able to give money to a lot of folks, but I can go down to centers. Like I can go to uh, the local homeless shelter to help out, not during this pandemic, but I can when it's over. Um, I can go down to neighborhoods, um, something that I've been doing right now. I've been baking a lot of brownies and I have a supply of several uh, N95 masks that I brought like two years ago for my emergency preparedness kit. I've been going down to the local supermarket, just giving out brownies and giving out masks specifically to black folks that I don't see happen. Cause I'm like, you know better. You should not be out here without these masks you take this now, no more of us can die because a lot more of us are dying now. So like, I kind of do it in a tongue-in-cheek way, but that's something that I can do. I can bake. I have all these extra masks that I've been hoarding since, you know, 2017. So I can go down to the supermarket, 
give out brownies and masks. That's what I do, though. <laughs> and you speak up and share the views. Uh, Derek, do you want to add to that? I just want to add that the 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 whole coronavirus situation will bring out the best in us or it will bring out the worst in us. And we're seeing that. We're seeing it bring out all these awful things. And I think we should let, let this like teach us and, and we'll see that it also just magnifies all the injustices that are already there. It is exposing them. I really think this is one of the key brilliant parts of the book of Revelation is that it's unveiling. It's exposing all this awful stuff, right? And I think what we need to do is then take that and amplify the voices of the people that are affected themselves. We can't speak for them, but we can take what they're saying and then use our platform to amplify that voice so that it reaches an audience that it otherwise wouldn't reach because of all of the uh, power imbalance problems. And I think by seeing who's affected and letting them, and then listening to them and amplifying those voices, that's probably the biggest thing we can do. And then we can connect people uh, around those things, and that's probably the best thing we can do during this time. So we also had a um, question and comment um, asking, how shall we think about serving the marginalized um, versus thinking about how we can create the conditions wherein our neighbors um, uh, are, be, are become marginalized, um, kind of, and, and working on removing the, the oppressive conditions that lead to that marginalization. Um, I'm gonna need to hear that question again, sorry. <laughs> so, so it's about, um, about thinking about serving the marginalized or um, versus um, addressing the larger oppressive conditions that lead to that marginalization. So what are some things that um, you would like to see people doing uh, allies doing, um, especially during this time of pandemic? Let me just jump in real quick and then I want to hear what James says. I, I really like what James and I did in our last podcast. I hate to be a commercial for our own podcast, but this is why we're here. Um, we talked about this. We talked about how King Benjamin's talk a speech about poverty in chapter four should not be taken about like a private handout to a panhandler. It covers, you know, social and structural change and institutional change. And we, we looked at all of the evidence in the Torah, the five books of Moses about that there are structural, governmental and societal solutions to these problems because these problems aren't an individual problem. And they don't need, and they're not going to be fixed by individual solutions. You have to have structural elements to take care of this. And I, I'm, it's just a long answer. And just for the whole long answer, just see our podcast uh, on Mosiah four through six. Yeah, I'm actually going to leave it with what Derek said because I was going to say something similar. Like I basically said in the episode, like if you care about those systemic and structural changes that can be made to address directly, address the marginalized directly, then, you know, involve yourself in community efforts to do just that, like support policies um, that fight these institutions that are oppressive, support things that will uh, give us prison reform, that will expand healthcare to more people so that, you know, the poor, the impoverished, and those who don't have great healthcare to begin with can get some. So like, I mean, that's what I'm going to do personally. Like that may not be somebody else's bag or somebody else may not feel like participating in the political process is going to do all that much, but you know, that's the best I can do for right now. Okay, another question. Um, uh, they shared that they love reading this text for accessibility, these uh, chapters in Mosiah and ask um, what other texts lend themselves to these kinds of readings and can um, we, and what can we do as a community together? This is for, this is for accessibility. Did I hear that right? Yeah. So, so you're kind of rereading a Mosiah one through three, um, to bring into focus, um, the marginalized and to make those scriptures more accessible to broader interpretations. Are there other um, you brought in some scriptures from the New Testament. Are there others um, that you can think of that also lend themselves to 
this kind of reading. So, yeah, I, um, <laughs> sorry, Derek, go ahead. Oh, um, I, the first one that comes to mind is the iron rod because the iron rod is literally um, something that's put in place as an reasonable accommodation to make something accessible when there is an issue around visual and physical access, right? When the mists come up, when the, you know, there's something that helps. And I think we can latch onto this and say, look, we need to, it's not about like fixing the person or fixing the disability. It's about like having something in place so that there's an alternative way to access the same thing that other people who are already there can access. And the next thing that comes to mind is the text in, um, in the Exodus narrative around Moses and Moses comes in and says, uh, you know, I just can't do this. I can't be the spokesperson because I have a speech disability. And look what God does. God does not say, okay, I'm going to fix you and take away your speech disability. He also doesn't say, I'm going to, you know, push you off to the side and, and just get someone else. He says, I will give you a reasonable accommodation in the person of Aaron, your brother. And I think the two of them together do more than they could otherwise. And I, I don't want to get into this narrative, oh, the solution to disability is to fix you know, the problem, because that, that's not where we want to go. And I don't think that's where the scriptures go. Even though some people take the miracle stories of Jesus that way, like he heals the blind people and the people with uh, physical disabilities. Like we have to be very careful how we teach those stories, not to, re, uh, to reintroduce ableism. Hmm. Now, I was going to say, like, I was going to say pretty much anything that we read, but the only thing I was going to say about those stories of Jesus was you'll notice that Jesus didn't do everything in any of the miracles he performed or everything in any of his ministry. Like he only did what was necessary. He did what people could not do. You know what I'm saying? He didn't exercise his divine power to do more than what was necessary. And I feel like he really exemplified what it meant to uh, make things accessible to people. Uh, one of my favorite stories about this is the uh, story of Peter and John healing the crippled man outside of the temple. Like, they didn't do that. Like, what a lot of people don't know about that story is if you were crippled, you couldn't go into... You couldn't go into the temple if you were crippled. Like, they, they didn't let you in there. Like, what they gave him wasn't, it was more than physical healing. They gave him access. And again, this whole idea of only being given that which you need to be given access uh, is something that, I mean, it's a central principle of the atonement is basically that all of us are healed or all of us are compensated in ways that allow us to be able to do what we need to do. So really, when you really think about it, our entire canon of scripture is a grand narrative of that which we cannot do being, or all of us being given enough that we might give access. I know there's, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying that carefully because it's very dangerous to kind of talk about the atonement as something that only makes up the difference. This is something actually that makes all the difference. But if you really wanted to read it that way, I think you could really read the whole atonement or the whole New Testament narrative, the whole ministry of Jesus as somebody that is doing what is necessary for us to be given access. Like that was the whole point of Jesus's ministry was doing what was necessary so that everybody could be given access. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Well, I think that we, We'll go ahead and wrap up. I hope that you can see some of the comments um, thanking you for your insight and preparation um, uh, and, and helping us to grow stronger together um, through sharing your, your thoughts and your authenticity um, on these scriptures. Um, and I, I personally have really, um, will be coming back to this and thinking um, more about how I can uh, radically include those who have been left out um, and also how to draw strength and compassion from the wells of our history as James and Derek have, um, have encouraged us to do so. Um, if you want to continue this conversation and ask other questions, uh, Brother Jones and Brother Knox will be hosting an Ask Me Anything session on uh, Beyond the Block's Facebook page tonight at 8 p.m. Um, Eastern time. 
if anyone has questions that we didn't get to today. So please take advantage of that um, opportunity. Uh, Dialogue also invites you as we, this becomes available to share the recording of this session with friends and family and to check out if you haven't already Beyond the Block and other podcasts on the Dialogue Podcast Network. Uh, and to tune in next week for Dialogue Sunday School once again, the lesson on Mosiah 4 through whatever it is uh, will be taught by former Dialogue editor Christine Hagland. Our closing prayer today, um, I don't know, uh, Melody, are you on? Can you, can you respond on chat? I haven't seen you. Okay, I don't see her. Um, we will then ask uh, Dialogue um, Board Member Michael Austin, uh, Chair of the, of the Foundation, to offer our closing prayer for this session. Our dear Lord, thank you, Lord, for this amazing technology that allows us to stay connected to each other, even at a time where we are staying apart in order to benefit each other. Thank you for the beautiful world that we have and the worldwide community and the many communities that we are a part of. Thank you for the gift of the Book of Mormon and for the inspired and learned teachers that we have heard discussing it today. Thank you for the grace of the atonement, for the love of your son and for the inexpressible gift that we have of each other. And help us to see each other's gifts. Help us to see all of our sisters and brothers and understand their spiritual gifts and understand their needs and their challenges and help us to embrace the gospel of radical inclusion that Jesus embraced and that we have heard about today. And Lord, we ask you to heal the world, to heal the world from the pandemic that currently affects every one of your children here. Heal the world, God, and show us ways that we can heal each other. We pray for these things today in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hi, everyone.